0: Right, this is uh, week four of Coming to Know Your Father. Uh, We've had some good discussion tonight, we've had some prayer uh, but now it's time to turn to the scriptures. So, turn to Galatians, Uh, we're going to look in particular at a moment at some verses from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. Let me read them from my version here. It's one of the wise versions, by the way. not A foolish version. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Spirit, uh, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then also an heir through God. Now, that's a remarkable passage of scripture. It's very compact and it relates to a number of other issues within Galatians. We're going to look at some of those in a minute but if we start at the bottom left-hand corner of the slide, the first thing I want to draw your attention to are the purpose clauses. Sometimes we think, that Jesus came from heaven by God's express will in order to give us forgiveness of sins. And if you think that, you're right. But if that's all you think, then you're wrong. Because the end point of forgiveness is adoption. Follow the purposes, the purpose clauses God sent his son, born of a woman, truly human, born under the law, in order, see that is the purpose clause, in order to. Why did you go to the shops today? I went in order to buy some milk. The purpose of your visit to the shops is milk buying. In order to redeem those who are under the law, so that or in order that we might receive adoption as sons. So the purpose of the son's coming doesn't stop with the forgiveness of sins. If you stop there, you still haven't come to the fullness of what Jesus has come to give you. He has come to give you an inheritance that you would be a son, a daughter, a child, of the Father, that you would be adopted into his family. And just let me interrupt myself. As we've said on an earlier occasion, when I use the word son, that doesn't primarily in my mind have a gender connotation. Uh, The word son is as much about status as it is about gender and in that sense all of the women are sons of God just like as we said when Mark was here in one of the earlier nights, uh, all of the men are members of the Bride of Christ. It's a statement about status, not about gender. So if I don't say sons and daughters or whatever, you understand what I'm saying. So the purpose clauses are significant. Galatians 4 is telling us the purpose of the son's coming is adoption. But that adoption, if you move up, we're going clockwise around this, is an adoption which moves us from slavery to sonship. Now, one of the greatest problems in the world is to convince any person that they are a slave. If you're a physical slave in Africa, as slave trading still goes on in some places you don't have to be convinced. But in terms of the spiritual dimension of your life, we have been brought up to believe and our own flesh wants us to believe that we are entirely free agents. We can do what we like when we like. We can believe what we like when we want to believe it. We can follow God if we want to believe in God or we can not follow him if we want to not believe in God. But Jesus said, he who commits sin is the slave of sin. Hands up the person here who's not committed sin. Well, you're stuffed, aren't you? That slavery is very deliberately used in the New Testament not because there were lots of slaves around the place and it was a handy metaphor but because it actually described the reality. A slave was someone else's possession. A slave could not free themselves. It's one of the greatest myths and worstly, worstly, (laughs) most wrongly, fearfully damaging beliefs that we hold that human reason can just extract itself from whatever situation it wants to get into. Human reason, beloved, is enslaved We don't see God as he is. we professing to be wise, we've become fools. And if you say, well, I've never been a fool, then it just proves the point. We stand with with those people in John 8 who said, we have Abraham of our father, we have never been slaves to anyone. So if that's the case, then the adoption, which is the purpose of the coming, from no longer a slave but a son is brought about by a redemption. Now redemption is a word we're going to look at tonight. Redemption is not just the same as forgiveness and it's not the same as justification. It is a word which is particularly attached to buying back out of slavery or redeeming from a debt which cannot be paid. So we have a redemption which has brought about our adoption. So, the fullness of time came because God brought it in order to redeem those, in order to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And now, that redemption takes place in the sons. Slave cannot redeem himself, never under any circumstances. A redemption by definition has to happen from someone outside his own situation. So what we're going to look at tonight are those four headings. We're going to look at the purpose clauses for a while, what, why they're significant. We're going to look at the slave thing and what we're redeemed from, what redemption is and then very briefly at the end what it means to be redeemed in the Son by the Spirit. Now, the purpose clauses. Why would Paul say that the adoption as sons is the purpose of the coming? Well, here's a few reasons. Firstly, if you remember back to our first night, we were created in God's image. True? So we're created to know Him as Father, true? So we're created to be His sons, true? And if that's not the case, the redemption, if it stops short of bringing us back to sonship, stops short of what we're created to be. In a sense, as I said up there, you have to work from Jesus backwards. Jesus is, as Paul calls him, the last Adam. True? He is what a human being was fully created to be and he is the pattern and the model of what you will one day be. You will be conformed, says Paul in Romans chapter 8, to the image of his son who was made, who was in the image of God. Yes? So Jesus Christ is the true human being. Now, we find this a bit hard. Hands up those of us who remember uh, the old Superman movies with Clark Kent and um, Jimmy Olsen. Do you remember those? And Lois Lane. Some of the blokes might remember Lois Lane. Now, we think a little bit about Jesus and us in the way that Jimmy Olsen thinks about Superman. Jimmy Olsen can never be Superman because Superman comes from a different planet. There's no actual connection between Jimmy Olsen and Superman and Superman actually isn't, properly speaking, a human being. He's dressed up in a mild-mannered reporter But when he goes to the phone box, the truth comes out. Now, many of us think about Jesus in that way. He's not really truly a human being. He's sort of like this big, muscly, powerful, buff God dressed up in a humble skin. And if he only took his humble skin off, you'd see what God was really like. Well, the humble skin... Is what God is really like. That skin is not detachable. It is a permanent fixture of God through the incarnation. And that skin, pierced through as you see represented on the crucifix, is the way God really is. There's no Superman to uncover. Behold your. God. Jimmy Olsen can never match Superman because Jimmy Olsen's just a mere human being. But what if the one we call Superman is really what a human being is supposed to be? Put the thing back in biblical terms. Jesus is the true human being, not us. When you look at Jesus you don't think, well he can do all of that because he's so special. No, (laughs) he can do all of that because he's truly a human being. He's the only true son who's ever lived fully obedient to his father and that sonship is what true humanity is like and cut off my legs and call me shorty, but one day you are going to be conformed exactly to that image so that everything that Jesus is in his humanity will match with you in your humanity or better, everything in your humanity will match with his humanity and you won't know what's hit you. You won't begin to realise until that day how glorious an inheritance God has for you. Well, you begin to realise it now. The intimations of the Spirit bring it to our hearts through his word. So that relationship that Jesus has with the Father is ours. It's not that we have a window in and we look at Jesus and say, goodness, he had a good relationship with his dad. I wish I had that. Jesus has come so that that very same relationship that he has with God the Father is ours. And that's why that little word Abba is so important. Abba, Father. That is the characteristic word that Jesus used To describe, to call out to God as his Father. And now, here in Galatians 4, as also in Romans, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Father come, and they teach you and me. They teach you and me to look up to this God who is the maker of heaven and earth, God the Almighty and say Abba and that Abba hears us and says yes my child what is it? My ear is all yours my heart is all yours what is it? And so when Jesus was praying in the garden in the midst of the darkness in Mark's gospel All his friends had fled and he was facing what he had to face. One word that pierces, Abba, if it be possible. And Jesus knew and the Father knew and the Spirit knew that it was not possible. that their plan from all eternity was that this cross would have to take place so that we, we, could call him Abba. So your sonship is not something that belongs to the periphery of your being as a Christian. And nor is the fatherhood something which belongs to the periphery of theological speculation. Fatherhood is what this universe is about. We won't look these up just now, but they are there on the screen for you. Philippians 2, verse 11, you probably remember that off by heart. That in that great day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. What's the last phrase? To the glory of God the Father. So here's Jesus, the Lord of all creation and every knee is bowed before him and as that worship from all of the nations of the earth ascends to him, the glory goes to the Father who sent him. Because one of the things that you notice about the life of love which the Trinity is, is that each loves to honour the other. Put the thing slightly differently. Has anyone here ever got envious of any other person? Hand up. Yeah. Like you could envy me because of my good looks. You could envy me because of my hair. That might attach to Kirsty more than me. Have you ever felt that bit of jealousy when someone else has got the praise at work or someone else has produced something which you think, oh goodness, I wish I could have done that. But what if in the end you are so conformed to the image of the sun that your greatest delight is that the other person is glorified because that's Jesus' greatest delight. His greatest delight is that you are glorified and if it's possible for him to have a greater delight, it's that the Father would be glorified because you are glorified. And the Father's greatest delight is that Jesus is glorified and everyone calls him Lord. And the Spirit's greatest delight is that they've come to know the Father and they've come to know the Son because he doesn't speak of himself. He takes what he's seen of the Father and the Son and he makes it known because the whole life of the Trinity is not centred on their egos, it is centred on the other. You and me, but also each member of that triune family. And so the Son stands and the glory that ascends from the nations as they praise him as Lord goes to the Father and therefore Jesus leads those nations in worship to the Father as the great high priest. But then the same point is made. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it's quite a remarkable passage Paul's talking about the resurrection of the dead which is the redemption of the body and the redemption of the whole of the creation through that act and uh, the remarkable things that he says about that, the perishable is raised imperishable and so forth. But let's go back to chapter 15 verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being, that is Jesus. For as in all died in Adam, so all made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his appearing those who belong to him. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, now notice, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. So who's the end point? What's the goal? That Jesus receives the kingdom from the Father and he returns and gives it to the Father for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet the last enemy to to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain, this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection to him, that God, in brackets, the father, may be all in all. Now, it's a bit complicated because of Paul's use of the word there but what he means is this. Jesus now is reigning at the right hand of God and as an act of service and glorification to the Son, God the Father is bringing all nations to his feet. He's bringing all things and putting them in subjection to Jesus Christ. He's doing that primarily through the preaching of his gospel. When all things are accomplished then all things will be subjected to Jesus Christ except the one who brought all things to subjection to him. That's what Paul's saying. So Jesus Christ having all things subjected to him then turns and gives all things to the Father. So why is this thing of fatherhood and adoption and sonship so important? Because that's the way the universe is made. You screw up the fatherhood thing, you screw up everything. But if the redemption through Jesus Christ is to mean anything, it must mean this, that it's a redemption through To the fatherhood for the sake of the father, that God the Father may be glorified through his children. Does that make sense to you? Now, you're no longer a slave but a son. First bit we've seen why the adoption bit is so important. The next bit we're going to look at is that statement no longer a slave but a son. Now, the picture's a little bit blurry because I've blown it up a little bit too much. But hands up if you think that's what your father is like or looks like. A few people? Hmm. Paul uses an extended illustration. This is Galatians 3. Verse 23 Now before faith came or it could even be translated perhaps before the faith came that is the hearing of the gospel we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law now my translation has was our disciplinarian. Some might have what? Do you have disciplinarian or tutor or guardian? Okay, disciplinarian is probably a good good version. Those other things are good too, but some are gooder than others. Know that faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under or subject to a disciplinarian. Now, I went to the physiotherapist today and I think they're probably one of the few people in the world who are paid to inflict pain. Uh, One of the others who inflicted pain was this disciplinarian that we're reading about, except he wasn't paid, as you'll see. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, As many of you who were baptised into Jesus Christ have put on Christ or clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. Very interesting difference of wording which we won't stop on. For all of you are one in Jesus Christ. That's why you're all sons. And if you belong to Christ then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs, not heirs. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minor children or minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of everything. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father, so with us, while we were minors we were enslaved to the elemental spirits, whatever they are. The elemental spirits may be translated the basic things. It's a Greek phrase we'll come to in a minute. But now when the fullness of time came, you've been set free. So this fellow here is not the father of the household. Many of us have had fathers who look like this. Many of us still feel that this is an apt image of what God is like. But this fellow is not the father in the story or the illustration. He is the disciplinarian. The Greek word was a paedagogos and for those who've got a teaching background it sounds like a word. Yeah. But don't think of it primarily as an educational term. The paedagogos wasn't just in charge of the child's education. The paedagogos was in charge of the child. The Paedagogos was a slave. He was a trusted member of the household and that child was technically an heir of the household and technically a master of the slave but for the time of his childhood he is actually given into the hands of the disciplinarian, the guardian, the tutor, however the translations handle it, the custodian in another different word, Why? Well, a few things happened, as you can tell from the picture. Uh, The child had to learn his ABCs and that's partly what might be behind Paul's use of this phrase, the elemental spirits, the ABCs, the things set in a series, the regimented order of stuff. But also, that Piedagogos had unfettered mastery over the sun. When the Piedagogos said that it was time for arithmetic, it was time for arithmetic. When it was time for Euclidean geometry, it was Euclidean geometry time. When it was time for gymnasium, it was gymnasium time. When it was time for sleep, it was sleep. When it was time to get up, it was time to get up. You had no choice. So you had this curious situation where a child who is destined to be the heir of the household actually experiences life virtually as a slave. But the one he experiences slavery under is a slave. He's not the owner of everything. The father is the one who owns everything. And then, and here we're not quite sure of the ancient adoption practices which Paul spoke of, but probably a Roman practice of coming of age where the pater familius gave full status of the estate to the son. At a certain time set by the father the son was released from under the paedagogos. My point is this, heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves. They are the owners of all the property but they experience life as a slave. Now Paul's saying that's what it's like before the gospel comes, before the faith comes. You are under guardians and managers, disciplinarians and there under that state you have no freedom of operation. You experience life as a slave, under a slave, and you now need to know, says Paul, this is not your father. And that's not a picture of what sonship is. You have been set free into the glorious liberty of the children of God, says Paul in Romans chapter 8, or possibly translated, you have been set free into the liberating glory of the children of God. I think that this picture is probably closer to the truth for many of us than we realise. So you have to be released from the Pythagogos with his big stick and his watchful eye and his disciplinarian ways. So what do you have to be released from? Well, there are a number of things. We're just going to run through some of them. You have to be released from the law. Now, let me just ask you this. Here we are, all sitting up, nice and prim and proper and safe and sound inside this church building tonight, all good, clean, washed up Christians. Not washed up, but, you know, cleaned up. So do you think it's a good idea for you now when you leave this building to get rolling drunk, punch a police officer, speed the wrong way down the esplanade and end up sleeping in the brothel overnight? Do you think that would be a good idea? No. Because you are still a creature who is governed by the law in the sense that adultery is still wrong. Punching police officers is still wrong. Getting drunk and throwing up in the esplanade is probably not the best way to live as a person. Do you know what I mean? So the law is good and it's holy and it's right and it's true. Paul tells us that very clearly in Romans 7. But you remember that place that we called the flesh last week the law interacts with the flesh in a toxic way have you ever seen trivial illustration but have you ever seen a do not a wet paint do not touch sign how many people have seen a fingerprint in the wet paint how many people have put a fingerprint in the wet paint Another trivial illustration, some of you have used, heard me use this before. There is a new rule in uh, the Lutheran parish and indeed the whole of far north Queensland that you, at uh, 5 to 8, from 5 to 8 on the 20th of March 2013, no one, while in this building, under pain of death, is allowed to think of an elephant. Thinking of elephants is absolutely forbidden. Thinking of elephants will get you expunged from the church. Thinking of elephants will have you taken out into the street and shot. So do not think of an elephant. Now, what's happening in your mind? You've got herds of them, haven't you? The law interacts with the flesh in a toxic way. As soon as the law says do not, we say, you bet your sweet bippy I will. And as soon as the law says do, we say not on your nelly. So we are not creatures naturally subject to the law. That law produces in us through the flesh and the toxicity of our reaction to the law guilt and condemnation and shame. And when that is produced in us It also, on the other side, produces self-righteousness so that you can stand off from a person and say, well, thank God I'm not like Don Rufenberg. Thank God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Thank God that I'm not like that politician. Thank God that I'm not like that union leader. And when you view another person with that contempt that's coming out of your self-righteousness and how many of us have said thank God I'm not like my dad so where's the love for your dad and how do you expect to have a full and free life that ministry of the law Interacting with the wickedness of sinful flesh produces toxic products, guilt, condemnation, shame, self-righteousness, contempt for others, lack of love, hatred, legalistic spirit. Paul says, before the faith came, that's where you lived. don't know if you can see that picture. That's a picture by the German artist Peter Bruegel, 1558 or thereabouts, is it? And uh, it's a picture of the blind leading the blind. Uh, they've all got their hands on one another's shoulders and one of them's fallen down into a ditch and they're all following along. Paul says... While we were in that state, before the faith came, we were subject to the elemental principles of the cosmos. He uses that phrase in 4 verse 3 and 4 verses 8 and 9. The regulations. And it's a bit hard to know exactly what he means but he does include, if you look at the way that word is used in other places in Greek and other ways in the New Testament, The elemental principles of the cosmos are law and legalism, all those things that we just spoke about that belong to being under the disciplinarian. Ritualism, doing things because if you do the thing then that gives you some favour. it's, It's the problem of all idolatry and all false worship is that you have to do more and you have to do it better and you have to do it... More in a more dedicated way, and if you don't do it, then they're going to be angry. And I was speaking uh, Kirsty and I together with a Buddhist lady a couple of or be a year or so ago now, and she was saying she tried to leave Buddhism on one occasion, but there were you understand the word familiar spirits, you know, uh, sort of demonic spirit manifestations, and she said uh, they started making things go really bad for me. And so one night when they, they came to me, I told them, well, I'll stop trying to be a Christian and I'll come back. You're in prison under the elemental forces of the world, demonic spirits, superstition. Now, all of this arises out of the flesh. It arises out of natural human reason, thinking that you can work out your way to God All of these things in different ways were features of Gnosticism that we spoke about in the discussion earlier. In other ways they were features of some aspects of of what we call the church but those branches of the church in our own tradition even where we've become more formalist and ritualistic and fearful and superstitious and we've seen God through the lens of our own fathers and we've been wrong and wrong and wrong. Paul says before the faith came that's where you were. I don't know if you can see what that is. <clears throat> it's a bunch of sour grapes. What else do we have to be released from? Well, one of the marks of those elemental forces, through the law, through its legalism, through its propensity to promote self-righteousness and other things is that you live in contempt of people and very often there's very strong and toxic contempt for our own parents and the Bible has much to say about leaving that behind and I just want to say a word here about the bondage of unforgiveness. Uh, you were created as a human being in the image of God to exercise dominion over your life and to exercise dominion over the creation. Is that true? Well, the greatest power by which you exercise dominion are the same powers by which Jesus exercises dominion. Humility, grace, love, mercy, forgiveness. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, says Paul. So the doctrine of forgiveness, the Christian understanding of forgiveness, in my mind, actually fits into the mantle of our dominion. Because where there's unforgiveness you'll be a slave. You'll be a slave to bitterness and resentment and fear and you'll be a slave to your judgmental spirit. You'll be a slave to the contempt with which you hold those whom you've not forgiven. I'm not speaking into the air here. I recognise there are human faces who are looking at me. In particular I just want to mention the blame shifting. It's very easy for us to say, well, if you knew my dad. But let me tell you the story of two brothers, both of whom had the same father, both of whom brought up up in the same household over the same period of time. Father was an alcoholic. One son turns into an alcoholic. The other son turns into a teetotaler. And both sons say, well look at my father, what do you expect? You see what I mean? That there's more actually going on in this relationship than simple cause and effect. Dad said this, therefore I'm that. Dad did this, therefore I'm this. If that's what it is, you're in a hamster wheel with no way out. And all the best psychologists in the world, however helpful they are, can't actually break it properly open for you. They'll be able to help you ask some very good questions. Now, the story in Ezekiel chapter 18 is of this blame shifting, particularly seen in the way they spoke about sour grapes. The proverb had arisen in Israel. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Meaning the fathers have done this and that's why we've got the expression on our face that we have. My father was a rat bag so I'm going to kick the world to pieces because he was a rat bag. And the prophet Ezekiel, or God through the prophet Ezekiel, has to say, no more will this proverb be heard in Israel because that generation was using their father's mistakes to justify their own wickedness. Of course you can't blame us for being idol worshippers. Of course you can't blame us for burning our own children on the altars of the idols because our fathers introduced the practice. Of course you can't blame me for my disobedience because my father was a toad. How can I be a man when my father was a toad? Well, your poor old dad was probably just learning what he'd seen from his dad. But The point is, Ezekiel says, no, it's never been that way. If you have a father and he does evil and his son ceases from doing evil and does good, is the son punished because of the father? No. Or if you have a father who does good, and his son turns out to be a fellow who wants to kick the world to bits, is that the dad's fault? Should you put dad in prison for his son's misbehaviour? We're getting close to it. The answer is, no. Because the soul that sins, it will die. Now, he's not just making a general statement that all people who sin die. He's saying that that particular soul who's doing that particular sin, that brings down the judgement of God on that particular person for that particular thing and while you're shifting the blame, you're never free of it. Have you ever noticed that? Now, we've got a few husbands and wives here. Be honest, okay? Have you ever had an argument or a discussion with your husband or wife? Yes. Yes. In some of those discussions, has the blame ever shifted from one person to another? Like about, yes, yeah, someone saying all the time. Do you actually find there's any resolution in your own heart or any other resolution to the intimacy of that relationship while that blame shifting's going on? Not in your life. So while the sons were saying well it's my dad's fault Ezekiel saying well you're never going to be free are you? You're never actually going to grow up and be a proper human being. You'll just be someone who blames all of your misfortune on someone else's problem and you'll never stand up and be free because you'll never stand up and take responsibility for who you are. being part of imprisoned to the elemental spirits and that's where we were before the faith came and we were redeemed and god said to us i've taken responsibility for the whole blinking lot of you and i haven't even said blinking as i've done it i've just done it I've taken responsibility for your sin. I've taken responsibility for your parents' sin and you parents who have children, I've taken responsibility for your children's sin and my son and I, together with the fellowship of the Spirit, have redeemed you from all of that wickedness and guilt and the fear and the superstition and the blame shifting and the unforgiveness and the hardness of heart and the bitterness and the criticism and the contempt that your self-righteousness brings to the surface we have redeemed you from all of that so that you would receive the adoption as sons and so that you would be conformed to the image of your son or image of the son. So how does that redemption take place? And we're going to come to an end soon. Do you remember the story of Ruth in the Old Testament? Ruth and her... Uh, Mother-in-law, Naomi, and that beautiful statement that Ruth made. Can you remember it? Turn me not back from following you. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. And where you go and where you die, there I will be buried. That's not exactly right but you've got the thrust of it. Can you remember? One of the most beautiful statements in the whole of the Bible. And Ruth was a Moabitess, she was not an Israelite but you know the story of how famine from one place they had to go back into Israel, they were gleaning in the fields because they had no property. So around the edge of the field they could still pick up grain and then she meets this fellow who must have been a bit older than she was called Boaz. Remember Boaz? And Boaz sees Ruth And Boaz wants to know all about Ruth. He sees her, it's just beautiful, he sees her. Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? Well, Boaz saw Ruth. And he made the right inquiries, he tried to work out who she was and who she was connected with and who her family line was. And and he discovered that there was another person who technically could have stood in for the Redeemer but that person wasn't interested in redeeming the field and Naomi and all of that that went with it and so the lot fell to Boaz. And do you think Boaz had a smile on his face? Well, in the story of Ruth and Boaz you see the four things that were critical in Old Testament redemption starting at the bottom left hand corner and going clockwise. First of all, the Redeemer had to be a blood relative, the kinsman Redeemer. It had to be someone of that person's lineage. And the person who did the redeeming needed to be free. A slave couldn't redeem a slave. And that person also had to be willing to redeem it because in Boaz's case the first redeemer was not willing to exercise his right of redemption so the right came to Boaz for which he was very grateful. But that person, even though they be free, even though they be a kinsman, even though they be willing, if they didn't have the price to pay, if they were not able to pay the redemption price, then redemption didn't happen. So who's your Boaz? Tell me. Jesus Christ. And he's spread more than the corner of his garment over you. He's given you his whole garment, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The best robe in the house has come out, along with a ring on your finger. And is he a blood relative of yours? You bet. That's why he became a human being through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Seeing that the children share in flesh of blood, says the writer of the Hebrews, he also likewise partook of the same, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. He is our elder brother. He is one He is the second Adam. And is he free? (laughs) He's the only man in the world who has been. No other human being has been free. Everyone else has been a slave. Everyone else has committed sin. And was he willing? You bet. You read Psalm 118 with joy take the sacrifice and bind it to the horns of the altar. For this reason I came into the world, not to condemn the world but to save it. Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I am the Good Shepherd and my sheep hear my voice. I know them all by name. I lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us to present us before the Father a pure and spotless bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. He's willing and is he able? Yes. He is the Lamb of God and only the Lamb of God can take away the sin of the world. And are you going to tell me now that his redemption is not enough for you? Are you going to tell me that what he's done hasn't liberated you sufficiently? That you need to go looking for some other Saviour in some other place? Or is what Jesus Christ has done so full and so complete? and so secure and so settled in the affection of the Father and so much a permanent part of this creation now that there is nothing that can separate you from Jesus Christ and there's never any condemnation that can ever be brought to you ever again and that there is nothing in the whole world that will stop him loving you because he loved you before he went to the cross. He didn't go to the cross so he could love you. He loved you so he went to the cross. And so Paul says in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in the flesh and there he means not that realm of sin but this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and was crucified for me. What he's saying is this, in that crucifixion I was there. Not in the words of the old hymn, which some of you may have heard, were you there when they crucified my Lord, which is a very self-righteous hymn. You there, naughty person, when they crucified my Lord, righteous person, naughty, naughty. You were there, driving the nails in. You were there standing, we have no king but Caesar but you were there in the body of Jesus Christ as he in his body who knew no sin was made sin. And everything that attached to your mean and beggarly spirit, every wicked thought, every evil intention, all of your stupidity that has ever attached to the foolishness of thinking that you're wise all of that was crucified with the Son of God. Paul says, when he died, I died. When he was crucified, I was crucified. When he was buried, I was buried. And when he was raised up, where did he leave you? He didn't leave you anywhere. He took you with him. So where are you seated? With Jesus Christ in heavenly places? So where he is, you may be also. I have gone to prepare a way for you. If it were not so, would I have not told you? So, beloved, where are you? You're no longer in your sins. You're no longer in the flesh, in that wicked sense. You're no longer under the elemental principles of the universe. You're no longer under the paedagogos, the disciplinarian. Where are you? You're in the very heart of God the (coughs) Father, united eternally with God the Son, through God the Spirit and there in that place there is no condemnation because the crucifixion's already happened. There's no death because your death has already happened. Hands up if you think you're going to die. No, sorry, you're wrong. He who lives and believes in me will never die. You just go from life to life. You've got eternal life. Hands up those people who through God's grace have eternal life. Boom. So what do you think? It's going to stop when you die. So it's suddenly not eternal. You're going to be ushered into a whole new realm through that door which is just a bare gossamer veil. And as you take your last breath on this planet it will be the first breath of a new heaven and a new earth for you. Wonderful. We saw, uh, what do they call it, sweetheart? Free diving. Kirsten's uh, done diving and diving medicine and you can go and get a scuba certificate if you like, or not, you know, not a scuba certificate, but a medical certificate so they can get a scuba certificate. But the point is we're watching a program about free diving, which is you go down without any air tanks on and go down as deep as you can and then you come back up again. Now, these people are holding their breath for five minutes or more and they're going down hundreds of metres. I don't know what the real record is, 300 and something metres? Can't believe it. No tanks, no nothing wetsuit and a big set of fins. And they had this guy breaking a record and they had people underwater filming and he went down and 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 down. And the water started to get dark and you could barely see him and he touched the boy at the bottom which triggered the sign that he'd actually made the record depth and then he had to swim all his way up again. So he went up and 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 his wife was waiting at the surface for him. And as he breached the surface of the water, what did he do? (sighs) And what did his wife do? Screamed and hugged him. Beloved, that's what it's going to be like. It's going to be you taking your first lungful of proper air for what seems like ages. And everything that you've swum through and everything that you've come through will suddenly be dissolved in a moment and your air will, your lungs will be filled with the air of the Spirit and there all of those who died in Christ before you will be to welcome you and Christ will welcome you and the Father himself will run to greet you and he will bring the robe and put it on you and they'll have a fatted calf and they'll have a great big banquet. But don't let it go to your head be cautious, be sober, don't get excited. There was a church in Scotland, we'll finish on this years ago. Some of the Presbyterians are a bit conservative, shall we say. And during a sermon where the gospel was just going out like a clear bell in a still night, this young university student who was just coming to faith cried out in the middle of the service, Oh, amen, hallelujah! And the old preacher leapt over the pulpit and said, We'll have none of that here, (laughs) laddie. Well, you can have it here. Let it go to your head. Let it go to your head. Let it go to your heart. And let the wind of the word... Jesus Christ Himself. Let's blow away all of the cobwebs of your fears and all of the cobwebs of those things that belong to that old world that we used to live in underwater once upon a time. So may the Lord bless us, eh? We'll pray. Father, we thank You that there is this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gospel. It could never have come from us. No human reasoning would have ever thought these things up. But Father, it's true. It's the gift of your spirit. It's the gift through the scriptures that you've granted to us to know Jesus Christ, to hear him and to come to know you as our Father. And Father, if tonight in anything that's been said or heard or done or read if you've just opened up a new door if father it's caused us to look at our own situation differently if it's caused us even to look back at our own father and to find there's a cross big enough for him just like there's a cross big enough for us father let it redound to your praise and your glory and so father as we move ourselves off and as we go tonight let us just meditate on the truth of these things by your own spirit's grace let not the evil one snatch them away and bring them to full fruitfulness in our hearts we pray in Jesus name Amen